Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. If you guys are new here, my name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And Hannah mentioned a little bit about uh, sort of our changing rhythms, like week in and week out. Um, What you can expect every time that we gather in this room, for the most part, will be uh, some teaching from the scriptures, uh, first some silence, and then some teaching, and then some worship, and the Eucharist and prayer. And so that's sort of the rhythm of our time together here in this room. And this morning, I'm going to jump back into the text that we were in two weeks ago, if you were with us two weeks ago. And if you weren't, you can find the teaching uh, on our website um, at theabbeyclumbus.church. But we're going to jump back into the text from two weeks ago, which is the story of Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9. And we left off on this story with Jesus picking up some dirt from the ground and rubbing it in his hands and spitting in it and making a little bit of clay and putting it on the blind man's eyes so that he could see. And part of the role that Jesus is playing in this text, if you go back and and look at John chapter 9, part of the role that Jesus is playing is he's playing and performing the role of a prophet. And prophets were known to act symbolically in the world. So stay with me here. I know I'm diving deep right at the beginning. But prophets acted symbolically. They did things with their bodies and with their clothes and with symbolic objects, like filling clay pots with water, for example. So we could read about Jesus' first miracle where he takes these giant clay pots and they fill them with water and and he turns that water into wine, which is not only a miracle, but it's also symbolic. He's taking this religious object and he's saying, we're going to change this religious object into a party. And he fills these water jars with over a thousand bottles of wine at a wedding. And we're going to look at that story in a couple of weeks. So prophets acted symbolically. It's, it's why John the Baptist shows up eating locust and honey. It's why the prophet Ezekiel cooked bread over cow dung. Do you guys know that story? You should look it up. It's why Elijah cast salt into the well to, to, to make the bitter waters clean. It's why Hosea received his wife back, even though she had slept with multiple men, he kept receiving her back into her home. It's why Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years. These are prophets acting prophetically in the world, and this is the role that Jesus is playing in the world. And so when Jesus picks up dirt and he spits in it and he rubs it together and he makes a little bit of clay to put on the guy's eyes, not only is he provoking the religious leaders because making clay on the Sabbath was like a violation of their law, but he's acting symbolically. And Jesus is doing this and John tells the story in a way that leads us back to the Garden of Eden where God says he took clay and he formed it to create a human being. And all of that we covered a couple weeks ago in our teaching. He, he breathed on it and he created a human. And the implication of Jesus's prophetic and symbolic act in this moment is that the part of the blind man that was not whole got filled in with new creation. And what we've been talking about that is that uh, our weakness is not a deficiency. I wonder if you guys have been able to sit with that at all in the past couple of weeks. Our weakness, your weakness is not a deficiency. It's actually 
the process by which God fills your life with his presence and glory. So wherever you are feeling weak in your life, wherever you're feeling like something's not working with you, it's the place where God wants to take new creation and fill that stuff in so that God can join himself to your life. So all of these, thanks for that amen, somewhere it said. Someone said amen, thank you. All of these places become the place where the kingdom of, of God backfills. And so Jesus is acting symbolically when he puts clay on the man's eyes and he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which is also a symbolic act, which I'm going to talk about this morning. But first, I want to tell you about my Uber driver, Richard. <laughs> so last week, I locked my keys in the car while I was out at Easton. So my key fob... Uh, the batteries ran out. My, my car thought that I had my keys, but I didn't. They were in the car. And my, my car locked automatically, and so I'm stuck at Easton. And the quickest solution that I could think of, actually it was my wife's idea, uh, it was to Uber back home to get the extra set of keys and to Uber back. And so I brought out the app, and Richard picks me up. And, um, you know, he said, hey, what are you doing? Where are you headed? And I told him I needed to go home and get my keys. And he said, well, if you just book a round-trip ticket on the Uber app, it'll be helpful to you. You'll save some money. It'll be helpful to me. I get to come back to Easton. And so that's exactly what I did. Um, and uh, once that was done, he said, um, this is good. This gives us more time to talk. <laughs> Because Richard was ready to tell me his entire life story. And I'm not going to lie, at first I was a little bit annoyed on the inside because um, I was at the end of a really long day. But the reason that Richard wanted to tell me his life story was because um, what Uber drivers do who are talkative is they generally ask you, what do you do? And I'm committed to not lying about that. And I said, of course, that I was a pastor. And here's the thing about, about saying out loud that you're a pastor is that um, when you tell people that you're a pastor, they don't ask to see your credentials. They don't ask you how you got into the ministry. They don't ask you anything about your theological position on anything. They often don't even want to know what church you pastor. All they want to do is tell you their story. And so Richard began to tell me his story about growing up at a home with parents who made their living in, in less than legal ways about the, the town in rural Ohio that is now gutted by drug addiction, about his own marriage to a woman who became an addict, and how he ended up with custody of their child, who was not his biological child, but her biological child, and how he ended up raising this child from the age this child was seven to the age of 20. And I'm getting let in on this entire story simply because I said I'm a pastor. It's a weird life, let me tell you. So his son was now 22, and he told me uh, that his son was studying at a local college and was on his own. And so Richard was living by himself for the first time in his life. And at this point in the story, we're at the halfway point, so we're at my house. Uh, Richard drops me off. I go grab the set of keys. He turns the car around. I get back in the car, and Richard says, so where were we? <laughs> And um, I asked Richard a couple questions to try to get him back to the story because at this point I was absolutely captivated by Richard's story. I was in and I wanted to hear the rest of it. I was captivated uh, by his love for his son and I was captivated by all of the unspoken grief that was peppered throughout his life that was sort of spilling out on this 40-minute round-trip Uber ride. 
And at some point, I clicked on Richard's profile in Uber. Do you know that you can do that? And you can see how many rides that they have and how, how many ratings they have. And I noticed that Richard had more than 3,000 rides that he had given in Uber. And I brought this to his attention. I said, wow, you've given more than 3,000 rides in Uber. And he said, I have at least as many in Lyft. And so I started putting a couple things together, wondering what God might want to do in Richard's life in this moment, thinking about how many times he's told a portion of his story. Thousands of writers have probably heard a portion of Richard's story. And so I said to Richard, Richard, it's clear that you love your son. And he says back to me, yeah, I think I've tried to be a father to my son in a way that my dad never could. And then I just asked Richard a question. I said, Richard, what do you do for community now that your son is gone and now that you're living alone? Like, who do you hang out with? What does your life look like? And Richard said to me, he says, oh, I guess I'm sort of a loner. I pick up all of these people for rides, and this is my primary connection to people in the world. And then I just held some silence, and I began to wonder whether Richard could hear what he had just said out loud. And I held the silence for a long time because that's what I do. (laughs) And this is what Richard said to break the silence. He says, I know I just said that I'm a loner. Maybe that's true. But honestly, it gets pretty lonely. And I just let that truth that he had spoken out loud sort of linger through the car as we headed back to Easton. And I, of course, invited Richard to church and I communicated some of my own story and I basically said to him listen Richard I don't know what you have plans for the rest of your life but I don't know if my life could ever function without community so feel free to give me a call if you're ever interested in that and I'll be honest I haven't really been able to get this story out of my head over the past week and a half or so because we are made for each other we are made for community and we are made for connection and I I doubt that you need much convincing of that, but since Hannah brought up some neurological science, I might as well sort of piggyback on that a little bit. Um, There's a whole emerging field in neurology called interpersonal or relational neurobiology, and it's pioneered by a guy named Dr. Dan Siegel over the past 30 or so years, and it's this idea that our brains and our minds are built for relationships and connection. And so that the, the way that our, our brain is physically structured is actually structured for connection and for relationship. And our brain changes neurologically based upon the quality of connection that we have, particularly in our family of origin or at a young age. And so if you grow up in a home where there's not a lot of emotional connection, your brain in adulthood is actually different. And I don't know if maybe some of you are discovering that in adulthood. You're like, man, I I have some work to do to get that emotional connection that I never had. And so other neuroscientists like Professor Matthew Lieberman at UCLA, and he's been able to map this reality that the pain that we experience socially of being left out or being rejected, it actually shows up in the same spot in our brains that physical pain shows up. 
So if you fall and break a leg, there's a portion of your brain that registers pain, and that same portion fires when you get rejected or you get left out or you, you, you have some sort of social interaction where you feel that sort of loss and that pain. Guys, we are hardwired for connection. That if you ask the typical person what's the most painful experience of their life, they don't share with you about the time they broke their leg. They share with you about a social disconnection, about a relationship that's fallen apart. So you ask a mother who's birthed three children what her most painful memory is, and it's not the birthing of those children. It's the disconnection that she feels from one of those children. You ask a man who's been to war about what his most painful memory is, it's not about the sleepless nights and all of the hiking through like the cold winter of war. It's about losing someone on the battlefield. Our most painful memories are related to our relationship or our broken relationships with people in the world. We're hardwired for connection, and I want you to hold on to this as we head back into John chapter 9. So John chapter 9, we pick up uh, sort of in the middle of the story, and Jesus takes dirt from the ground, and he spits in it, and he creates clay, and he rubs it on the guy's eyes. And he sent him away to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so the blind man went away, and he washed, and he came back seeing. So this blind man has an encounter with Jesus, and his eyes are now covered with the dust of the earth and the spit and the breath of Jesus. And he's still blind, by the way, and now he has to stumble his way back to a pool to get healing. I mean, why is Jesus making this guy work so hard for his healing? Do you ever wonder about that? I mean, just a chapter beforehand, Jesus uh, makes a guy who can't walk, all he just says is stand up, and the guy stands up. So why does this guy have to stumble through the darkness again back to the pool of Siloam to get his healing? I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are the blind man, blind from birth, encountering Jesus probably for the first time. You know that he's a prophet because by this time, everybody knows that Jesus is a prophet. His popularity is growing. You've heard of miraculous things happening when this rabbi shows up to teach. And he's just put his hands on your face and he's just rubbed mud on your eyes and he's spoken tender, sweet things into your ear and he sends you to the pool of Siloam to wash. And now you're, you're filled with the anticipation of seeing because you anticipate the fact that you're about to get healed but you're blind and you've got mud on your eyes and so you're you're stumbling back to the pool of Siloam and the story doesn't travel with the guy back to the pool of Siloam but we know that you can't go very quickly when you're blind and we also know that this is the the feast of the of the of the booths the whole city is jam-packed with a bunch of people and uh, there's a huge feast there's a bunch of food and what I imagine happening is I think that probably there's a little bit of a scene that's beginning to emerge as this guy stumbles his way back to the pool. And the text seems to indicate that this is the final day of the feast. It's the eighth day of the feast. It's a Sabbath day. And on this Sabbath day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priests would come from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And they would draw water from the pool of Siloam 
in an all-day procession. They would take these pots to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water from the pool and they would carry the water back to the temple and over and over and over again all day long they would pour that water into a silver basin in the temple where then they would pray to God that God would provide rain in the next season. And it's during this ceremonial procession from the pool of Siloam to the temple, this day-long procession with priests going back and forth from the pool, that the Jewish people would also come to the pool of Siloam and watch the priests perform this ceremony. In hope and anticipation of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as promised by the prophet Joel. Hundreds of years prior to this moment, the prophet Joel Speaking on behalf of the Lord says this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Layers upon layers. Jesus sends the blind man who's been called a sinner who has always been left out of the temple worship, by the way. He's probably never been in the presence of God. He's never been in the presence of people singing songs of praise and worship. He's never been able to make a sacrifice into the temple. He's never been able to pray in the outer courts. He's always been a beggar on the margins of society, and he's probably told pieces of his story to a thousand people simply by the fact that he's a beggar begging for food. Hey, man, what's going on? Why are you blind? <laughs> well, you know, I've been blind from birth. and He's an Uber driver. <laughs> and Jesus sends him to wash his eyes in the one place on that day where all of the people are gathered in the presence of the priests who he's never had access to. To wash his eyes with the same water that was being taken to the temple in front of a pool of water that represented for everyone the hope of an outpouring of God's Spirit, which would result, says Joel, in young men seeing visions. Friends, I don't know if you can see it, but Jesus is a master of symbolism, and John can really tell a story with words. Layers upon layers of things that are happening. And the blind man washes in the pool of Siloam and he comes back seeing. And the rest of John chapter 9 is spilling out of controversy as people begin to try to understand what is going on. How did this just happen? Friends, listen. Part of receiving the healing of God will always include the community of God's people because there's no such thing as healing without connection. It doesn't exist. And if we wanted to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail, we could go down a trail and look at the healing ministry of Jesus and how often Jesus performs healing or speaks a word in an effort to remove the stigmas and the assumptions that keep people separated from one another and separated from community. We could talk about the woman at the well visiting at the hottest moment of the day to avoid the crowds and how Jesus speaks a word of life to her such that she runs back to tell people about what she's just experienced. We could talk about the Seraphonician woman who thinks that all she deserves is the scraps from the table from Mark chapter 7. 
and how, and how Jesus uh, basically uh, honors her voice and heals her daughter. We could talk about the woman caught in adultery, publicly shamed and publicly restored. The way that Jesus completely levels the playing field in this story where everyone leaves that scene recognizing that they too are sinners. We could talk about the healing of the leper who was excluded from community so that he could be brought back in. We could talk and visit a small cave on the outskirts of town where they've tied up a man possessed with a demon because they don't have the power or the patience to, to know what to do with this guy so they just chain him up at a cave. These are the places where Jesus goes over and over and over again to grab the people who are disenfranchised and to bring them back into community. The healing of the blind man came through being integrated into the story that everyone was celebrating on that day. Does this make sense? The power of community and connection is one of the primary places where God brings his healing. That's why we do church, by the way. It's one of the primary ways that he brings healing to you and to me and to our friends on Sullivan Avenue and to your co-workers who are lonelier than you can possibly imagine. This is why people join a CrossFit gym to get in shape. That's why they join a yoga studio to deal with their anxiety because everyone knows deep down is that we cannot make it on our own. Something happens when the humans get together. So at our best, we love and care for one another, don't we? We build things. We, we care for the weak among us and we get mirrored back to us our own weakness pull together our resources and we set up a GoFundMe page and we bring each other meals and we show up to important events and we do the work of asking really hard questions to one another and then we listen for the glory of God in the answer. Community and connection is the primary way that God is bringing about his healing in your life. This is why my Uber driver Richard, who self-described himself as a loner, has given more than 6,000 rides to strangers and still says to me after 40 minutes in a car together where he pours out his life story, honestly, it gets a little lonely. We were born with an insatiable desire to connect because we were made in order to connect. And so the metaphor that God uses throughout the entire story of the scriptures to help us make sense of his eternal and global project, the metaphor he uses is the metaphor of a family. He began with one family, the family of Abraham, and he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many people and many nations because my entire project in this world is to build a family. And through this family, the entire world is going to come to healing because healing happens through community and connection. You guys know I mostly preach one-point sermons. Like just one concept. And the thing I want you to get today is that healing happens through community and connection. 
One of the questions I'd love for you to consider this week is where are the pools of Siloam in your life right now? Where are the places where God is leading you to integrate your life into the larger story that he's telling through people, through connection with other people? And maybe that's happening at school. It could be happening in your workplace. It could be happening in this place of church, reconnecting with old friends. I know some of you are are reconnecting with old friends even in this space right here. I just saw somebody this morning I haven't seen in probably seven years. This is like how it happens. I just want to ask you to consider where are the pools of water that God is inviting you into in your life right now. So we've talked about the pool of Siloam. I want to talk briefly about the temple. As the priest carried water from the pool of Siloam, they carried that water to the temple. And this was the second temple that the Jewish people had built. The first temple was Solomon's temple, which was destroyed in 6th century BC. And this temple, this second temple, was built for the worship of God, just like the first one. And before the Jewish people had a temple, they had a tabernacle, which was a tent that they traveled with through the wilderness after coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God's people wandered through the desert, and they set up tents that they lived in, and they set up a tabernacle where the presence of God dwelled and moved with them as they traveled throughout the desert, waiting for God to bring them into the promised land. So they were nomadic people. And the feast that they're celebrating in John chapter 9 is this feast of, of, of tabernacles, of booths. It's like these tents that would have been set up, and they were reminding themselves of their journey uh, in the wilderness. They're commemorating those years, and they had the tabernacle of God traveling with them. So eventually they came into the land uh, that God had promised them, and Solomon wanted to build this giant temple so that they could house the presence of God in a proper way, so he thought. And it was through the presence in the temple where God ministered healing and love to his people, but it wasn't just for his people. Even if you weren't Jewish, even if you weren't of the people of Israel, you could come to the temple, and you could pray, and you could worship the creator God in the temple in Jerusalem. But when God came in human flesh, John begins to indicate what this all means in the first chapter when he said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word he uses for the word dwelt, uh, the Greek word eskene is the Greek verbal equivalent of a noun used to describe the tabernacle in Exodus. So what this really means is that God is tabernacling among us. That's what we read in the Gospel of John. God is tabernacling among us in the life of Jesus. And Jesus himself begins to speak of his own body as the temple in John chapter 2. So friends, listen, if you pull the lens back from the story, from the biblical narrative, you see that the presence of God begins in the garden and is lost, but then shows up where God is making God's self known in a cloud and in the fire and then dwelling in a tent in the desert. And the tent becomes a temple where the invitation to God's presence is extended to the entire nations. 
And then in the fullness of time, God shows up in the body of a man and tabernacles among us so that, so that we would have access to his presence. And then on the day of Pentecost, the presence of God fills people. And by the time the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he's had a little time to develop the narrative in his mind. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of God? Your body is the temple of God. Sometimes we read that as your body, like as in like your body and your body, but in the language it's actually second person plural and there's really no like beautiful way in our language to say that other than y'all. <laughs> so what it's like is that y'all's body is the temple. Amen. <laughs> now I'm from southern Ohio so I can like rock that a little bit, but y'all's body is the temple of God. That means us together, collectively, we are now the temple of God. We're the, we are the place where the presence of God dwells. Together. The presence of God is with us. So speaking at that very feast on the steps of the temple... As the jars of water are being carried up for the pool of Siloam, Jesus, in front of the crowds, stands up and says, All who are thirsty can come and drink. I am the water. Because the power of community and connection with people in community is the way in which God is bringing his healing about. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians. So then, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and are of God's household. What he's saying is you're a family. You're children of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone you are a building being fit together, growing into the temple of the Lord. You are being built together as a dwelling of the temple of the Lord where his presence can come. I'm saying all of this as part of our overarching series on what does it mean to be a human being. And what I'm trying to say is that Part of what it means to be in a human being is to be in a room with other people, allowing the presence of God to dwell among us. And here's been my prayer for you and for me this week as I've sat with this text, as I've prepared this teaching, is that my experience is that most people who've been trying to follow Jesus and be in Christian community have at least one instance of being a hurt in community. Like really hurt. Because we're people. And my hope is that even today as we worship, that the presence of God would fall in this room and do the healing work in community from the wounds that you have experienced in community. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying to do here is we want to be a community of people that through community and connection 
we administer the healing of God. So I'm going to invite Noah and Naomi and Rayleigh to come back up and begin to lead us in a time of worship. And I, what I want to do is I just want to invite the presence of God to do a particular work in our hearts today, is to heal any lingering brokenness that you have related to your connection to God's people and community. So would you just pray with me as we head into worship? So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. God, would you be among us, Lord? Would you be with us? And pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would fill us with your presence, Lord, as you've promised, as you've declared that we are your body, your temple. I pray, God, that you would teach us how to be near to one another, to be close to one another, Lord. God, would you fill our hearts with worship. And as we worship God, I ask, God, that you would come and that you would administer your healing touch in community for all of the wounds that we have from community. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you guys to stand as we worship.